humans have have really fallen. You know, that we, we used to be in the garden. We used to be with God. We were programmed. We were designed to be with God. And God is supernatural. Uh, God is extraordinary. Uh, and what happened in Genesis 3 was humans fell. We fell from the extraordinary and we fell down into the valley. We fell from the mountain and we fell down into the valley of the ordinary. And, and intrinsically, as human beings, we know that we were meant for something more than what we're living in, Right? We know that we were meant to get back to the extraordinary. We know that we were designed for more than the ordinary. So we have this internal longing, this internal desire. It's particularly strong when we're young and we still think we can be something amazing. And then as we get older, we start to realize that maybe we won't be what we thought we were going to be. And it starts to kind of peel back a little bit. Our bodies start to age. We realize, you know, I don't have much more life to do the things I thought I was going to do. And God graciously sort of relieves that. But here's the amazing thing about the gospel. See, we know we were meant to get back on the mountain. And most religions say, yeah, that's what you need to do. You need to get back up the mountain. Because, see, that's where God is. God is transcendent. He is up the mountain. But what's so surprising about the gospel is the gospel isn't about man getting up the mountain. The gospel is that God, listen to me, God came down the mountain. And then he carried you up the mountain. So what does that mean? It means that we experience God not in the transcendent, not in the supernatural, not by flying to Tibet and climbing a mountain, not by going to Jerusalem and going up the temple steps, not by going wherever the holy place is. Every religion has a holy place except for Christianity. Why? Because the holy becomes the ordinary. Because God brings his transcendence to us. And he meets us in the ordinary places. Isn't that good news? Here's what we're going to see in our text. We're going to see what happens when we only look for God in the sensational. You know what happens? We miss him. We miss him. In our text, we're going to see just how extraordinary the ordinary can be when it is animated by God's hand. Just how extraordinary the ordinary can be. Our, our text, as Constance read, our text is made up of, see, that's going to be a problem. That's what happens when you only have one hand. Okay. Can someone come hold this for me? No, I'm just kidding. Um, I got it. Okay, there we go. Um, Our text this morning, I'm struggling. Will you guys pray for me under your breath? Thank you. Um, Man. Okay, I'm so ordinary. Okay. The text this morning, as Constance read, is really, it's a mixture of two texts. First, we see Jesus coming to his hometown in Nazareth and being ultimately rejected. And then we see the second half of the passage, which is Jesus sending out 12 disciples to do ministry, to cast out demons, to heal with authority. Uh, And and so we're going to work our way through these two passages uh, together. Now, the outline is really simple. If you're an outliner, uh, we're going to take the first half of our section is going to be called the Extraordinarily Ordinary Jesus, verses 1 through 7. The Extraordinarily Ordinary Jesus, and verses 7 through 13 is the extraordinarily ordinary disciples. That's our outline. So let's start with the extraordinarily ordinary Jesus. Verse 1 of chapter 6, Mark chapter 6. Jesus went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. Now let me just set the scene for you really quick. Jesus has been ministering up until this point in the Galilee, particularly the Sea of Galilee, uh, particularly the, the east coast of it. He's been ministering in this area, um, and now he travels 25 miles southwest to a small town called Nazareth. Have you heard of it? Uh, you have. 
Everyone in Jesus's day hadn't. You guys ever heard of Montague, California? Raise your hand. Oh, okay, I got to pick somewhere else. Uh, you ever heard of Cave Junction? No, that's not going to work. Uh, you ever heard um, Weimer? No. Uh, Hilt. Hilt. Anyone heard of Hilt? Okay, you have. Dudes on the East Coast haven't, right? Because uh, it's not really an important place in a lot of ways, right? Uh, by ordinary means. So Jesus travels from the Galilee where he's been ministering back to his hometown. Now, I have a particular affection for this passage because I grew up in Nazareth. And not real Nazareth, but my version of Nazareth. It's a, it's a town called Montague, California, and 600 humans. Uh, everybody's related. Everybody knows each other. No, not everybody's related. Uh, but everybody knows each other, and nobody knows where Montague is, right? So when you explain where Montague is, you just say, oh, we're by Wairica. And when you explain where Wairica is, you say, we're by Oregon, right? Uh, that's the way you explain it. Jesus grew up in this really small town called Nazareth. And Nazareth, really, it's not in the Torah. It's not recorded in the Old Testament. It's not in any of Josephus's writings. It's not in Mishnah. Why? Because it was just a small town. It's about 150 to 200 people. Um, they've actually done some archaeological dig, digging there recently, and they found about six acres of what was Nazareth. And it was an agrarian society, a very small, very seemingly insignificant town. This is where Jesus grew up. And if you grew up in a small town, uh, you know that everybody knows you. And you know everybody. Going to the post office means having five conversations with people that all know you, right? That's just the reality of a small town. Some people love that. There's nothing wrong with a small town. But Jesus grew up in a small town, and now he's going back to his hometown. It's not the first time that he's gone back, so he knows what he's expecting. But this time, guess who he has following him? His disciples. He is going to teach a lesson to his disciples. What's the lesson? The lesson is, boys... I need you to see what it looks like to be rejected. You know, we love to share our strengths with people, don't we? We love to share when we're just killing it, when we're crushing it. We think of discipleship. Most people say, I don't want to disciple somebody because I'm just not really, I'm not doing that great. Great, share your weaknesses. We need to let people see what it looks like to struggle. And what I love is that Jesus invites his disciples to come watch him struggle, to be rejected, to come home um, and get a really poor uh, reception. And I, and I love that. I think it's amazing. So Jesus heads to Nazareth in verse 2. On the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogues, uh, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? So Jesus comes back, and they're, they're kind of baffled by what he's saying and what he's doing. Now, Nazareth was only 25 miles from Capernaum, where Jesus has been ministering. So they already heard of the rumors of Jesus. They'd heard the stories of Jesus' healings, right? They're aware of it. Uh, and so he immediately gets an audience in the synagogue. And the synagogue was really kind of like a modern-day community center in many ways. It was like a church. People would gather there in the community. Um, and so Jesus gets asked to speak, and he begins to preach like he did in all the other cities. Uh, now, these guys, out of anybody really in the world, these guys should have been the most excited to honor and respect Jesus as God's man, as God's son, as God's prophet. But they didn't. They, they didn't do that, actually. Completely the opposite. Here, here, listen to what they say. They say basically two things. The first thing they say is, who is this guy plagiarizing? Who is this guy plagiarizing? Do you see that? They see, where is he getting this wisdom? Whose teachings are these? Now, why are they saying that? 
They're saying that because they know Jesus, and Jesus doesn't have any letters before his name. He doesn't have an MDiv. He doesn't have a doctoral studies. He, he didn't go apprentice under a rabbi like Paul the Apostle did when he was Saul of Tarsus under Gamaliel. He doesn't have a famous pedigree. He doesn't have uh, someone that he followed around and learned from, and they know that. Not to mention when Jesus teaches, he doesn't teach like the other rabbis do where they cite other rabbis and their authority. Jesus teaches with his own authority. It says that elsewhere in scripture. Who is this man who preaches with his own authority? He gets up. He doesn't do like what I do, which is to hold the scriptures as the ultimate authority. Jesus just stood up and was authority. And they're actually really bothered by this. They assume that he's uh, stealing someone else's teachings. or th- th- Where did he get this? Who is this? What's this guy doing? The second thing they say is, where is he getting the parlor tricks? Where's he getting this power? We know Jesus. He's not really healing people. He's not really raised. You know, the last miracle Jesus just did uh, back in Mark chapter 5, he raised a little girl from the dead. Okay, so so they're clearly assuming, their presupposition is that Jesus is not, uh, he's certainly not God, they would say. He's certainly not the son of God. He's certainly not a prophet. We don't know who he is, but we know that he's not what he says he is. So therefore, the assumption is the power must be false. Or they might go so far as even to say maybe the power's from the other team. Maybe the power's from Satan. We don't know. They say, where is he getting this power? Now, one commentator noted, and I thought it was uh, worth quoting, he said, in this... They were not unlike our modern scientific age, which is much more concerned with the mechanical question, how, than the theological question, why. Isn't that what we do in modernity? We ask the wrong questions. Rather than say, why is Jesus doing these things? What is the theological significance of these things? We go, how? See, rather than say, why is the resurrection so important? Why did the resurrection of Christ change the landscape of the entirety of the world? We say, how did that happen? But the Bible isn't always so concerned with the how as much as it is concerned with the why, right? The Nazarenes, those from Nazareth, are very concerned with the how. How could Jesus possibly be the guy that he's claiming to be? Now, we see what they think of him in verse 3. They say this, is not this the carpenter? The son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon are not his sisters here with us? Now, they're essentially saying three things about Jesus and who he is in their estimation. First of all, they're saying, hey, this is the carpenter. Okay, this is the carpenter. Now, a lot of people have interpreted that as being uh, pejorative or negative towards Jesus. I actually don't think it is. I don't think they're saying, hey, this guy's a carpenter, like this guy works at Wendy's or something. That's not what he's saying. I actually, being a carpenter in that day was actually a um, highly esteemed position. And by the way, we don't even know if he was a carpenter. The word for carpenter is tecton. It could be translated anyone with a skill set. Could, it could literally be talking about a physician. It could be talking about a stone worker, a ship builder, um, someone that had a particular set of skills that not just anybody could do. Uh, the idea that Jesus was just sort of making yokes for oxen, um, farmers could make their own yokes, actually. So whatever Jesus did, he was particularly skilled at it. Um, and this idea that the Jews disdained him for having a physical job is actually not true. Uh, the Greeks were the ones that thought of physical labor as being less than, uh, than think work, blue collar. In reality, the Mishnah, which is the, the Old Testament commentary, Mishnah told men that they were responsible to do four things for their sons. Number one, circumcise. Thanks, Dad. Number two, find him a wife. Thanks, Pops. Number three, teach him the, the Torah. And number four, teach him a physical trade. So if you didn't teach your kid a physical trade in the Jewish first century, you were actually a bad father. 
That's why Paul, who even had an impressive pedigree as a Pharisee, he still knew how to make tents. Working with your hands was actually something everyone had to learn. I think that's kind of cool, don't you? I think we should all do that, right? Um, so, so Jesus had this physical trade. So they identify him as the carpenter. That's not necessarily an insult, but the next thing they say certainly is. Do you see what it is? Isn't this the carpenter, Mary's son? Why is that an insult? It wouldn't be an insult in our culture. But in a Jewish patriarchal culture, even if the father was deceased, which he probably is here, you would never refer to a son by their mother unless they didn't have a father. It's an insult. So at best, this is an insult. At worst, this is them bringing up the town gossip, which was that Mary, who claimed to have been impregnated by the Holy Spirit, was in fact a floozy and really got knocked up before her, her wedding day, and everybody in town knows it. And isn't this the kid who doesn't even have a real authentic father? Isn't this that kid? It's basically what they're saying, right? That's basically what they're saying. And then they say, this is the one who is the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon. And are not his sisters here with us? You know, Jesus had half-brothers and sisters. Mary and Joseph, they had children. Jesus was the oldest. And, and they're familiar with these children. They grew up with these children. It's very possible, if you put on your uh, fictional hat for a moment, it's very possible that Jesus' brothers might have been those kids. You know what I mean? Every town has those kids, the ones that are toilet papering houses and, and being ridiculous, you know. It could have been. They could have been this, is, this is Joseph's brother. He's, who does he think he is, right? His sisters still live in our community. We're still familiar with them. So, so they're very skeptical of Jesus in this moment. In verse 3, uh, the second half, look at, what they, uh, look at what it says about them. It says, they took offense at him. Offense. The word for offense there is scandalon. Where we get our, uh, it's the Greek word, we get our word scandalized from it. The literal translation is stumbling block. These guys are tripping over Jesus. They're stumbling over Jesus. I just sounded like a gangster right there. I didn't mean to. Literally, they're tripping, okay? Uh, <laughs> they are stumbled by Jesus. They're, they're scandalized by Jesus. They're, they're outraged. They're angry. They're frustrated. They're annoyed that little Jesus, who, who was just really just a kid, he's only 33, he comes back to Nazareth like he's some big shot preaching with authority and claiming to do all these miracles. Who do you think he is? They had disdain for him. Why? Why they have disdain for him? Well, Jesus nails it on the head with this common parable that he quotes of the day. He says in verse 4, Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. So Jesus knows what's going on here. He knows what's going on here. He knows why he's being rejected ultimately here. He knows why he's being questioned. There's two reasons that I think are in this, this, uh, this parable that he gives. The first reason is because the Na those from Nazareth, they think they know themselves. There's an old adage, you're probably familiar with it, familiarity breeds contempt. Familiarity breeds contempt. Uh, like I said earlier, that's why you don't want to meet your heroes, because you meet them and you realize they're still human, and it sort of, it, it makes them less ordinary, extraordinary to you, right? Familiar, familiarity breeds contempt. Like Dr. McGee said on this passage, he said, an, an expert is just, in other words, an expert is just an ordinary fellow from another town. It's so true. I love being the guest speaker. Everybody thinks you're so smart. 
And then, then you sit with people every week and they know better. They watch you drop your Bible and mess up your microphone. They know you're an idiot, right? You guys all know this is true. The reality is that Jesus knows the reason that they discredit him is because they're familiar with him. The reason they discredit him is because they're familiar. Because they have a low estimation of themselves. You remember Nathaniel's, uh, I think it was Nathaniel's response when someone said, hey, the Messiah has come. He's from Nazareth. He goes, <laughs> nobody good comes from Nazareth. That was a pretty common view of Nazareth. So you can imagine the way that the, those from Nazareth think about themselves is, yeah, nothing, come, nothing good comes out of here. So what they're really saying is, Jesus, who do you think you are? We know you because we know us, and you're nothing special. You think you're better than us? You're not. Have any of you guys ever experienced that when you got saved? You have this radical thing happen in your life where you become born again and you, you become a, a, a host of the Holy Spirit and a messenger of the gospel and you come to your unsaved family or your unsaved friends and you go, hey, I got to tell you, you need to get saved too. Uh, Jesus loves you. He died on the cross for your sins. He's calling. He wants you to come into his kingdom. And they go, who do you think you are? You were just smoking a joint two weeks ago. And you go, no, 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 everything's changed. And they go, yeah, whatever. Prophet has no honor in his hometown. That's the reality, right? They think, well, that can't be authentic because I know you. You're just like me. And that's exactly the point, isn't it? That's exactly why our testimony is so powerful because we are nothing special. So They think they know Jesus. The bigger problem, though, the reason they reject Jesus here and note this is because they think they know God. They think they know God, and, and you know how they picture God? They picture God on Mount Sinai. He's up the mountain. He's somewhere else. Where does God live? Somewhere else. How do you find him? You go, you go on a journey. You go on a trip. You find him. You, you, you go on a pilgrimage. Where's God? Ah, he's, he's maybe in the temple, Jerusalem. He's not in Nazareth. See, they think they have God pegged. God's in the supernatural things, right? God is, is not in the ordinary things. God's in the supernatural things. God's in the sensational things. We go to get to God. God doesn't come to us. They think they have this all figured out. See, their assumption is that they must transcend to God in the extraordinary. And this keeps them from seeing that God has transcended to them in the ordinary, namely the God-man, Jesus Christ. You know, unfortunately, Hollywood has made a lot of movies about Jesus, and he's always this good-looking, uh, with an Australian accent or something, with long, flowing hair. And um, you know, uh, Jesus actually was just a pretty average-looking guy. In fact, Isaiah fifty-three, he said he says he basically was nothing to look at. You wouldn't pick him out of a crowd. He was just a guy. He was just normal. There's nothing impressive about him in terms of his physical characteristics. He's just a normal guy. So here comes this normal guy who you grew up with, who you graduated with. And yeah, he was always really nice. You never saw him do anything weird, but you know, I mean, or anything bad. But, but, but who does he think he is now? Who do you think you are? You're not taller than anybody else. You're, you're not stronger than anybody else. God, I know my God. My God works through the extraordinary, right? He's Sinai, God pillar and cloud. He, he shows up and he glows, right? I mean, he's, 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 his aura goes before him. That's my God. He, he's the God of the sensational. And don't we think like that so much? Like we're looking for God in the, in the sensational and the sensual. We're looking for God in the feelings and the big moments and the, 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 the catalytic moments in our life. But in reality, where is God usually working? He's working in the ordinary things, and we miss him for that reason. 
We totally miss him. We completely miss what he's doing. Their worldly appetites were so fixated on a sensational God that they missed, listen, that they missed a relational God. They missed that God had in fact come to them. They were so fixated on this idea that they would have to go to God that they didn't realize God had come to them. There he was, God in human flesh, the God-man, God the Son. Jesus said that it is given to the disciples. He said, it's given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God. Remember, we talked about that word a few weeks ago. The Greek word is mysterion. It's exactly what it sounds like. It's a mystery. It could be translated the unexpected kingdom. It could be, it could be translated the counterintuitive kingdom. The idea is that God's kingdom is breaking into this world, and it's breaking in through the unexpected avenues. No one expected God himself, Yahweh, to come into his creation, to become part of his creation, to come through the fallenness and the weakness of human birth, and to grow up in a town that no one cared about and no one thought about. No one expected that. It was a mysterion. But yet that is where God is moving, and yet that is where God is working. God often speaks through the ordinary things, but we miss them because we're so obsessed with the extraordinary this is, um, this is a real problem in Western Christianity, okay? It's a real problem because we all have the internet. And it's made the local church look like garbage. Why would we go to the local church when I can watch some dude who's got 16 cameras and the best sermons in the world in an amazing worship. Why would I do that when I could sit at home and just watch that? Why would I go to the ordinariness of a body of, of broken, sinful, annoying people that frustrate me and, and, and don't always say the right thing and I might feel awkward and I might be uncomfortable and, and yeah, Sam's preaching is not that good and yeah, the, the music could be better, the seat's hard. But I mean, why would I do that when I could go get the sensational online all the time? But the reality is that God doesn't work through the sensational exclusively. He works primarily through the ordinary. He works through the messiness. He works through the earthiness of life, of Christians interacting with each other in an unimpressive environment. Are you with me? We need to see these things as valuable. We need to see God as the incarnational God, the God that steps out of the divine, steps off the mountain, and comes into the valley where we are at. What a good God. Aren't you glad that the gospel doesn't say, hey, come up the mountain, figure it out, find your way, transcend, go find yourself. We serve the God that says, I've come to you, and I've come through the daily things of life. God spoke through the ultimate language. You know what it was? Jesus Christ. You know what language we speak the most? We speak human. That's why news, whenever the news has a report, they always have a human element. That's why movies are about people, because people are like a language. We understand them. Jesus is the language of God. God has come to us. He's communicated to us. He's transcended to us. He stepped into, I love Eugene Peterson says, he's moved into the neighborhood. He's in the dust. He's in the dirt of the earth. This Jesus who tripped over his own feet, this Jesus who probably sawed boards wrong, this Jesus who, who, who grew up and had to, to deal with all of the growing pains of being a human being. This Jesus who grew up in a, a nowheresville, nothingville, without anything, uh, no, no prestigious background. This is the way God has chosen to speak. So I'm going to ask you, how much of your life is spent focusing on the sensational, on the extraordinary, and how much of your life is looking for God's hand in the ordinary? I said at the beginning that this engine 
this engine that has driven much of my life is trying to transcend the ordinary. I want to be extraordinary. I want to be really good at what I do. I want to be really important. I want to, be re- I want to really matter in the world. Who doesn't, right? But what God is teaching me and what God is teaching us is that what really matters is not the extraordinary. It's seeing his hand in the ordinary. It's seeing what he's doing in the everyday things of life. We miss those things because we're too busy looking at people's fake lives on Instagram. It's not real. Their lives are not real. They're putting out a false version of their lives. You've got to understand that. Listen to this. Like Jesus was fully man and fully God, we become, listen, we become full of God, yet still fully man. Like Jesus was fully God and fully man, we become full of God, vessels full of God, yet still fully man. And you know what? Jesus didn't come to take away your humanity. He came to fulfill it. So we have this, this wrong dualistic thinking from Plato and Aristotle, this idea that God is about the spiritual world and not the physical And so Jesus came to save us from the physical world. No, Jesus came to marry the two together forever. He came to redeem your humanity, to make you more human than you were before Christ. Isn't that amazing? So you are now a vessel full of God, yet entirely human. You know what else is like that? This book. See, people stumble over this book because they think about it wrong. They think, well, I read this, and it sounds like it was written by men. You know what my answer to that is? It's because it was. But I thought you said God wrote it. I say he did. But how can God have wrote it and man wrote it? How could Jesus be fully God and fully man? It's the same thing. God did write the word, every letter of it, by the Holy Spirit, through the earthiness of human beings. That's why when we read Paul, we see a lot of Paul's little quirkiness in there. When we read Solomon and he's, he's in the Ecclesiastes, he's, he's just sort of depressed. The Bible records it because God speaks through the earthiness of real life and real humans. That's why the Bible is so incredible that God would speak through the human elements of the world. So what? Our idea, listen, our idea of what is sacred and what is secular needs to change. We think of what is sacred or what is spiritual in terms of how sensational it is, but in reality, it's just the opposite. Verse 5. So this is why they missed Jesus, right? They missed Jesus because they thought, surely Jesus is not in Nazareth. I know my God. (laughs) Well, Jesus in Nazareth. Surely God is not in Nazareth. He's up on a hill somewhere, right? He's not in Nazareth. Verse 5. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. Have you ever read that verse and been like, what? He could do no work there? What does that even mean? Does that mean that his power was somehow limited by human belief? No, it doesn't. This isn't like, uh, you know, Elf where Santa's sleigh runs on belief. And if there's not enough belief, then the sleigh doesn't get off the ground. That's not how it works. Jesus can totally do a miracle Jesus could not do a miracle because he would not do a miracle. Why would he not do a miracle? Because, listen, because miracles don't create saving faith. They confirm it. You want proof? The Pharisees knew the resurrection was true. What did they do? They tried to cover it up. Why? Because miracles only serve to harden the unbelieving heart. Jesus isn't going to waste the miraculous because he knows they're already chosen to, they've already chosen to be unbelievers. We see that in the Exodus where Moses comes to Pharaoh. 
very similar. And, and Moses says, hey, uh, I met Yahweh in the, in the woods, <laughs> and he said, uh, you need to let my people go. And Pharaoh's like, you? I know you. You're nothing special. And the more miracles that Moses does, what happens? Pharaoh's heart gets harder and harder and harder and harder. Why? Because if you don't believe and then you see a miracle happen, you're going to do backflips to try to figure out how that miracle wasn't true. And the more backflips you do, the more callous your heart gets and the more far you get from the gospel. So Jesus actually graciously doesn't do the miraculous here. He's not going to waste his miracles on those who have already chosen not to believe him. If there's anybody that should have believed, it should have been these guys, and they didn't. Nazareth, in reality, typifies Judaism, and it typifies national Israel in their apostasy. Because Nazareth, of anyone, should have known, and they didn't. So, that's Jesus in his hometown. Now, let's look at the second passage, and I'll just make a few, few quick remarks. Now, we're going to look at Jesus sending out his disciples. So, these guys have been in a three-year discipleship program. He selected them. They've been walking with him. And up to this point, he's been the only one really preaching and teaching and doing the miraculous. Now he turns a corner where he's identified the 12, and now he's going to send the 12 out to do it themselves. Kind of an exciting passage. Let's look at it. Verse 6. By the way, I want you to see three ordinary things and then one extraordinary outcome. Okay? The first ordinary thing we see is in ordinary places. Verse 6. He went about the villages teaching. I love that. I know it's a kind of a, just a short little verse, but he went about the villages. He didn't go to the urban centers. He didn't go to Athens. He didn't go to Corinth. He didn't go to Alexandria. He didn't go to Ephesus. He didn't go to Rome. He, didn't, he, he did go to Jerusalem eventually, then they killed him. Where did he go? He go to the villages. He went to the villages, the seemingly unextraordinary places, the ordinary places. I love ordinary places. I love Grant's Pass. It's not extraordinary, but I love it. It's exactly where God has put all of us. We're here for a reason. Right? And God's going to do incredible things in seemingly unincredible places. I love that Jesus takes the time to go to the villages. Ordinary means. And then, or pardon me, ordinary places. Number two, we see ordinary men. Look at verse seven. He called the 12 and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. I just want to point out that these guys are incredibly ordinary. <laughs> They're not Jewish rabbis. They're not educated. Matthew was educated in certain areas, but he was ultimately a, a sellout tax collector. These are fishermen. One of these guys is basically a social terrorist. I mean, the, you, you know, he's carrying a knife around in his back pocket. He's ready to jab somebody. Like, the, these guys are nobodies. They're nothings. Jesus picked these guys as ordinary so that he could do the extraordinary through them. And the authority that he gives them is ambassadorial. It's not their own authority. It's not their own power. They're simply stewarding it for Jesus. They're borrowing it. They're unpedigreed. They're untrained. They're only partially trained. Now, some of you guys in here are going, yeah, I'll start making disciples. I'll start preaching the gospel as soon as I feel like I get, like, as soon as I feel like I know enough. That's not what Jesus did. He sent these guys out way before they were ready. You know, these guys actually didn't even get it at this point. It's pretty obvious when you read the Gospels, like there's a lot of times where you're like, wow, these guys don't even know what's going on. They're still confused. Jesus sends them anyways. You're ready. I just want to say that this morning. You're ready. It's time. It's time to go. It's time to, it's time to, it's time to start preaching the Gospel. It's time to start walking in the authority and the finished work of the Gospel that Jesus, in fact, has 
paid for the sins of his bride and has risen from the dead to prove it. And the Holy Spirit is, in fact, in Grants Pass, in Philippi Church, ready to move, ready to work. Are you ready to go? It's his authority. It's his message. We're just a bunch of unextraordinary people that he is waiting for us to say yes so he can go. We don't have to be perfectly trained. We just got to start. Ordinary men and then ordinary means. Look at verse 8. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. What is that all about? Why is that in the Bible? It's in the Bible because Jesus is sending these guys out. Firstly, he's sending them out in a sense of dependency. Hey, look, I don't want you getting comfortable. This mission is not about being comfortable. It's about being focused. It's about being focused. I don't want you getting distracted with your things. I don't want you getting distracted with your possessions. I don't want you getting distracted with making sure your airline tickets are right and making sure that you got the right motel. Just go. Don't wait. There's a sense of urgency. Just go. Put your sandals on, grab your staff, and go simplicity. There's a simplicity to this. We don't need to clutter this. You know, this idea that, well, I need to go be seminary trained before I can start to serve the Lord. There's nothing wrong with seminary training, but no, you don't. You have the power of the Holy Spirit. You have the power of the gospel. You have the authority of Jesus Christ, who is right now ascended to the right hand of the Father. He is running the show. You just say yes to him, and he sends you, and you go. It's simple. Keep it simple. Keep it simple. You know who God uses the most in his church? Simple people. He uses everybody, but he really loves to use the simple. I'm proof of that. He loves to use the simple. He sends them out in simplicity and dependency and urgency. Part of the reason he doesn't want them to go home and pack a bag is because they need to go now. The clock is ticking. The kingdom is coming. It's breaking in. It's time to go get to work. Let's do it. God loves to make very much of very little. Verse 10, he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. What's that all about? Why are they told to shake the dust off their feet? That's actually what Jews would do in the first century when they would leave a Gentile land and come into a Jewish land. It was a sign and a symbol of judgment. I don't want to carry anything from this land into God's land. So what Jesus is essentially saying is he's saying, go talk to the Jews, because remember, this ministry is to the Jews. Go talk to God's people about the inbreaking of the kingdom. Go tell them that uh, Israel is apostate and that a new administration is coming and a new king is coming, and either you repent or you're going to miss it. And if you don't repent, shake the dust off your sandals and walk away. Now remember, don't apply this to the lost of the world. This is Jesus sending his disciples to the religious people of the world. Okay? These are the religious guys. These are the guys that are supposed to know the truth. These are the guys that know their Bibles. He says, hey, go tell the people that know their Bibles that they've completely missed Jesus. And if they reject you, then just just keep walking. Okay? That's essentially what's happening here. So we see extraordinary places, extraordinary men, extraordinary means, and lastly, an extraordinary outcome. I'm sorry, did I say that wrong? Ordinary places, ordinary men, ordinary means, extraordinary outcome. Here's the extraordinary outcome, verse 13. They cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Can you imagine? For the last year, you've been watching Jesus do all this stuff. 
You're just like, man, Jesus is healing people. Jesus is preaching with authority. And all of a sudden, Jesus says, your turn, go. Take your staff, take your sandals, go. <laughs> okay. You go to the first village, and you're like, uh, in Jesus' name, repent. Okay. Okay. Uh, you don't want to? Okay, cool. Shake your dust off your sandals. Go to the next village. Okay, repent. Oh, you want to? Oh, cool. Awesome. Awesome. Okay, cool. Oh, you got a sick kid? Uh, okay. Uh, Jesus' name, be healed. Whoa, he just got healed. Holy cow. Like, can you imagine if you actually prayed, and, and then it happened? Like, you'd be, in, you'd be blown away. <laughs> These guys are just, they're, they're, they would be floored by this idea. There's another passage in Luke where Jesus sends out the 72, the larger circle of disciples. He sends them out same way. Here's the authority. Go cast out demons. Go heal people. They do. They come back and they literally say, Jesus, the craziest thing happened. You said to do it and it happened. And you know what Jesus said? He says, that's great, guys. Calm down. Rejoice in this. Not that you have power over darkness, but that your name is written in the book of life. So here's an important point. God loves to show up through ordinary people. And he does. And he takes over. And sometimes when you step into the work of the ministry, you'll feel the Holy Spirit come through you and you'll be like, what did I just do? How did that just happen? And the temptation, though, is to rejoice in the power rather than the person. That's the temptation. The temptation is to rejoice in the power of God rather than to realize that I'm just so glad I'm part of the kingdom of God. I'm just so glad I'm part of the kingdom of God. You know what's really kind of weird to think about? The 12 that Jesus sent, you know who was among them? Judas. He probably cast out demons. He probably preached repentance. He probably healed people. Yet he was of the devil. Just because we serve God, just because we do things for God, doesn't mean we have authentic faith in God. And there's a sobering reality there, I think, for us to consider. Jesus said, what, those who did many works in his name, he said, I didn't know you. I didn't know you just because you did works for God. The, the, the joy that we have is that we have faith in Jesus. It's his authority. It's his power. But stepping back, just think about how incredible that would be to take Jesus at his word, to do what he said to do, and to see him actually come through. It would be incredible. Now, let's step back and put this all together. I want to make sure we have some time to discuss Let's step back and put this all together. Why, uh, what, what do these two passages have in common? In both of these passages, we see God working extraordinarily through the ordinary, right? We see him working through the ordinariness of his own incarnation. We see him working through the ordinariness of these 12 disciples. So what does that tell us? Well, it tells us that we need to see God's extraordinary hand in ordinary life. If we see God's hand in extraordinary life, we're going to start to see three things. You might jot them down real quick, and we'll close with this. Number one, if you start to see God's extraordinary hand in the ordinary things of life, you will stop measuring, and you will start valuing. See, we do this thing. Maybe you don't. I don't. I, I do. We do this thing where before we choose to invest ourselves in something, we start to, start to think, well, is this going to get me closer to transcendence? Is this person going to make my life better? Is this person going to help me in some way? Is this job going to get me up the ladder in some way? Is this opportunity going to get me further in life? Is this going to make me better, more? And we start to measure everything that we do to see what we get back from it. But the reality of thinking this way is we stop thinking, what's going to get me further? And we stop thinking, where is God at work in the ordinary stuff? You got the, the, the mom who stays home with her kids. And she watch her, watches her husband go off to his job, perhaps, and move up the ladder. And she starts to think, you know, here I am. Nobody recognizes what I'm doing. Nobody sees the value of what I'm doing. 
changing diaper after diaper. Who cares about this? Maybe I'll just send my kids off and maybe I'll go get a career. Okay? The problem is in that moment is not what she's doing, what she's doing as eternal value. The problem is how she's viewing it. See, there are no ordinary things. And in that moment, you don't view your kids as being in the way of your extraordinariness. You view your kids as being the means by which that God is bringing you into a place of being able to understand that he is extraordinary. God wants to work in the everyday things. You might have a job and you feel like, man, this job is just holding me back. I'm so much better than this job. I have so much more skills than this job. I need to move up. Well, maybe you do. Or maybe you need to stop and think about the fact that maybe God is using the ordinariness of that job to do something in you, to work in you. Maybe that's the reality. We stop measuring around us and we start valuing what's around us. We start valuing when we're up at two in the morning. We stop valuing when we run out of gas. We start valuing when our car doesn't work. We start valuing these seemingly annoying, common, earthy, broken things and start to say, God is at work in these things. The classic, well, I I go to Fred Meyer and I pray for a parking spot because God just always wants to give me the best parking spot. Maybe he doesn't. Maybe he wants you to walk. Maybe the ordinariness of walking an extra 20 feet is what you need. God's at work in the ordinary. He's at work when your plumbing breaks. He's at work when your car breaks down. He's at work when your kids aren't listening to you. He's at work when your dog pees on your carpet. Not that I know anything about that. Okay? He's at work in those things. Number two, you start seeing God's work in the ordinary. You will stop doing as much and start being more. You'll stop doing and start being. We are so doing focused. We reach for it when we start to feel empty. Well, what am I doing? I need to do more. One of my jobs as a pastor is just to tell people to calm down. I do it all the time. I just want to do more. I feel like I need to do more. Can I do more? How do I do more for the Lord? And I say, that's great. I'm super glad you want to do more. You need to start by being. Our doing needs to be sourced in our being. What do you mean, Sam? I mean that you need to start by not doing anything but realizing that Jesus has done everything. And then your doing will be more informed by what he's already done. Most of our doing as Christians is really empty doing. It's, we're just trying to, we're trying to justify ourselves. We're trying to get somewhere. We're trying to feel better about ourselves. We're trying to relieve this nagging feeling of, of guilt and shame and whatever. And in reality, when we believe the gospel, we realize Jesus has done everything. So I can do anything that he calls me to do. Isn't that great? That's called gospel-centered work. Work that is rooted in the gospel. We stop doing and we start being. See, the gospel doesn't start with our transcendence to God. It starts with God's imminence to us. It doesn't start with our performance. It starts with his acceptance. It doesn't start with our competency. It starts with his completion. The gospel starts with done. It's done. Take a deep breath. Just do it. It's done. It's finished. We get to do things for Jesus. But you don't have to save the world. The world's already been saved. Jesus did it. That's when you start waking up every morning to be and then do, rather than to do so that you can be. Thirdly, we start to see God's hand in the ordinary. We stop striving and we start depending. We stop striving and we start depending. When we recognize that we are a creature and that though we want to transcend, we are not capable without God, we look to him 
and he becomes the source of what we need. Dallas Willard said, Christianity is what you do when you realize you can do nothing else. When you come to that point where you go, I am nothing without God. That's the most relieving statement you could probably ever say. Because you like to trick yourself into thinking that you are something. And you get God. No, no, no. You're nothing without God. He is your everything. He's your everything. That's such a relieving feeling. Remember uh, the, the, the disciples, with Jesus said, hey, everybody's leaving. Everybody's offended by me. Everybody's tripping over me. Are you guys going to leave? And what does Peter say? Where else would we go? You have the words of eternal life. We recognize that God is truly what we need. God is truly the source. So I encourage you guys, I invite you guys to think about that this week. When you're frustrated with the earthiness of life, when you're frustrated with the ordinariness of your life, consider the fact that God is actually working extraordinarily in the ordinary. Amen? Father, thank you so much this morning for your word. And Lord, we pray that we would not be like those at Nazareth that were so sure that they had you figured out, so ready for the extraordinary, that they missed the incarnation. They, they missed that God had walked into their village to love them and to save them. Lord, I thank you that like you sent the 12, you have sent all Christians with this great commission to go make disciples. Thank you, Lord, that we have the authority and we have the power of the gospel to go and preach this good news to preach and call people to repentance and to believe the gospel. I pray that we would do that this morning. Lord, we love you in Jesus' name. Amen.